Welcome to Inside the Boardroom, a new podcast from the Carlson School of Management at the University of Minnesota, where we bring you thoughts, ideas, inspiration, and points of view from business and academic leaders in Minnesota and beyond. I'm Jamie Plusser, Assistant Dean for Marketing and Communications here at the Carlson School. What is Inside the Boardroom? Well, we're fortunate here at the Carlson School of Management to have more than our fair share of outstanding speakers and presenters visit campus and share their perspectives. I'm talking about events like First Tuesday, the longest running executive speaker series in the Twin Cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul. Last year, First Tuesday featured CEOs such as Beth Ford from Lando Lakes, Doug Baker from Ecolab, and Jeff Harmoning from General Mills, to name a few. Or the annual Convene Conference an event which brings together academic researchers and medical industry executives to share their perspective on trends, opportunities, and challenges in healthcare. Or HR Tomorrow, a conference produced by our school's top-rated human resources and industrial relations program, which delivers information about the latest transformations in our workforce. We're talking about a who's who list of speakers, companies, organizations, brands, and industries from one of the most dynamic business communities in the country. So what is Inside the Boardroom? It's our chance to bring these fantastic speakers and discussions to you on demand in podcast form. Kicking off our series in episode one is University of Minnesota President Joan T.A. Gable, who spoke at the school's first Tuesday event. In her remarks, Gable hits on the role of engagement at the university, challenges for the world of higher education, and some stories that tie back to her undergrad days as a philosophy major. Let's listen in. I've worked in higher education for almost 25 years before becoming president, and I've seen at a few places how universities run, how they set priorities, what's expected of us by our students, by the parents, by the public, and really how our core value proposition is assessed. But a lot has changed across the national landscape in lots of ways, as we all know. But in the last few years, it's really included an existential threat to what higher education means to us, our fundamental value proposition arguably being in question. And that's pretty new for us. We work in an industry that's arguably been around for more than 1,000 years. It's gone pretty well so far. So this recent conversation is a pivot at the very least, and as you might expect, creates an interesting time to be in leadership. So if you could indulge me, I'd like to do a short level set reminder of our origins because I think it really informs our way forward during this interesting time and this moment in the higher education landscape. And when I say origins, I really mean origins because as an undergraduate philosophy major, uh, which makes me obviously an expert, um, I want to refresh all of us on the anchor of the role of education in society because I really think it helps us think about what it means as we look to the future and plan our path ahead. So I'm starting at the very beginning. Plato is perhaps the first philosopher to offer a representation at the core of what we call social contract theory which is where virtually everything in modern Western society emerges from. Socrates followed in the early Platonic dialogue with Crito, many of you remember reading, and in that work, he explains that social contract theory says that we, explicitly or implicitly, surrender some of our freedoms and liberties to rules or authority or government, depending on how you translate, in exchange for the benefits of an organized society and social order. And this concept existed throughout ancient philosophy, but really took shape in the modern era with Thomas Hobbes and John Locke. So in a very quick synopsis, 
Hobbes and Locke posited that people are self-interested, equal and rational, but need authority and structure in order to create society and avoid harm. And about 75 years later, in France, during the Enlightenment, Jean-Jacques Rousseau noted also that people are self-interested, equal, and rational, but need government to guarantee opportunity and advancement. And this really took shape as a social theory in the late 20th century with John Rawls and David Gauthier, who said that social contract theory presumes that the exchange we make requires us to cede to authority of government in exchange for authority and opportunity. So authority in exchange for society, or one might say here in America, an exchange that society offers for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And as we move forward into modernity, we think about public health, police force, military, roads, and so on, that we take for granted, but are all available because we give things up in order to live in the society that we live in today. And consistently, in the works of these philosophers, and of course, clearly to us who work in education, the value of education was a presumed part of this exchange, was part of what you get when you become a member of an organized society. And the most overt and arguably the most persuasive position for this comes from Rousseau, who noted that education is required in order to properly understand and engage in the broader societal exchange of authority for opportunity and advancement, or we might say here, for access and excellence. One should have the opportunity to be educated in order to make the choice to participate fully in society, and then that education enables society to advance and improve what it offers back to its participants in a beautiful, continuous cycle. Rousseau described how education prepares individuals to be contributors and how education is part of our bargain in the social contract, but in a way that reflects that education makes us better and is a core contributor to opportunity and that that is what society is supposed to offer. And despite the fact that everything I'm saying are things that we've all just presumed literally for centuries, there are some, particularly of late, who don't see the value that society receives in exchange for offering education, particularly higher education. And this notion has dramatically deepened its roots in the last few years. So across our nation today, we see a push away from bachelor's degrees, certainly also into graduate education, challenges to the humanities, reductions in research funding, palpable energy are asking us to justify whether we serve students, whether we serve society as a whole. For example, recent survey data from the New York Fed notes that Americans with a bachelor's degree earned less in real terms last year than they did in 1990. And just two-thirds of those graduates believe their investment in their education paid off. There are those who argue that universities have a negative impact on society. Many of you saw a Pew Research Center study highlighting that in 2015, there's been a sharp rise in the share of people who identify as Republicans saying that colleges have a negative effect on the country. And others question higher ed's 60% six-year graduation rate, according to the US Department of Education, as well as the graduation rates from two-year institutions, which are even lower. And perhaps the most profound argument are those that point to last year's college admissions scandal or the mounting 1.5 trillion in national student debt as challenges to the value proposition of higher education. It's important to note that every single one of those daunting slides has robust data showing why they aren't the full story and aren't necessarily even accurate. But the fact that those conversations exist 
the fact that that very discussion is happening draws a lot of attention, certainly our attention, to the value proposition that people are questioning in university life and in higher education in general. From this, we start to feel really intense pressure around cost and relevancy, leading some states and institutions to respond with very deep higher ed funding cuts, forced eliminations of programs, and often with a focus on revenue rather than quality or impact. Many of you heard about what happened in Alaska a few months ago, where the University of Alaska system confronted an overnight 41% cut in funding. Imagine a 41% cut overnight to your operations and what that might mean. The relatively good news is that over a short period of time, the outcry was sufficient to soften that blow to a $70 million cut over three years instead of a $135 million cut overnight. Um, I'm not sure that they were happy about that outcome despite the fact that it was a better than where things started. And at the University of South Carolina, where I was recently provost, the state of South Carolina has experienced the fourth largest cut to higher education in the nation. With the downturn in the economy in 2008, nearly 40% of the University of South Carolina's funding has vanished. Of course, here in Minnesota, the story is much better, and we're very fortunate to live in a state where our elected officials believe in the value of education, pre-K through 20, as we say, but funding is still down nearly 13% since 2008. And while state spending for higher education is up 3.7% nationally in fiscal year 1819 over the previous year, we're one of only five states, including Ohio, Alaska, Kentucky, and South Carolina, that have received less funding from their legislature. But we're very optimistic about what the future holds and improving that year over year. And we are not inclined to complain or gnash our teeth and instead want to lead through this very interesting time and this very interesting challenge by staying true to our core role in society while also evolving to reflect the times and perhaps more importantly, evolving to articulate overtly our value proposition. So we ask ourselves, what is our value proposition? What's our mission? Are we supposed to generate revenue and have a fiscal impact? Are we supposed to pose and explore and answer questions? Are we supposed to make our students employable? Are we supposed to develop our students as citizens? Are we about job readiness? Or are we about our long-standing institutional role to ensure that what we offer is what education is supposed to offer? And what does that even mean? Is it the tools to advance, the ability to discern, critically analyze, and communicate skills needed for, as we often say, a life well-lived? Or do we evolve by deepening even deeper into our theoretical role, or arguably devolve by only doing what results in that first job upon graduation? Many people would prefer that path, um, which we understand. But we here have held tightly to the expectation that an education is more than a set of skills. But many higher ed institutions broadly feel pressure to cut costs, including courses or programs that aren't profitable. And we do a very good job threading that needle, preparing our students for the job market while also educating them more broadly, particularly here in the Carlson School. But it's not surprising that higher ed institutions have had to make significant changes to their business and revenue models, especially as tuition, as a cornerstone of our funding, hits the wall, as we know from that social conversation. So it's a very interesting dilemma, because we really aren't a good or, or a service where we can look at a pricing model 
and think about where our competitive landscape lies and simply cut accordingly. And we also don't really think about competitive distinction in the same way as other uh, sectors do because a lot of what we do is around shared governance and open knowledge and conversation. But friends, there's a really great quote by American novelist James Baldwin that says, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. So here we are. The important questions I've raised about higher ed's value proposition are posited at what I think all of us who are in higher education professionally think is an incredibly interesting time. This is a landscape fueled by disruption. There are new technologies. There is different competition. Expectations are changing in real time. It's exciting. It's our challenge and the challenge of the times, arguably, in higher education to face change and navigate through this disruption without forgetting who we are or our role in society or, in my opinion, the principles of Plato, Locke, Hobbes, and Rousseau, that we exist as part of a commitment from society to its members and the members of society back to each other. And in our case here at the University of Minnesota, we can't forget that we're a public land-grant institution and that we have 170 years of tradition that we hold very dear, founded in the faith that everyone is ennobled by understanding, dedicated to the advancement of learning and the search for truth, devoted to the instruction of youth and the welfare of the state. This mission is as true and relevant today as when it was etched into the front of Northrop Auditorium. And that is my leadership challenge, which is, you know, no biggie, right? No big deal. So, <laughs> those of us who do this all day, every day, are committed to who we are, to embrace where we come from, and to leverage our strengths, and think about our impact with a modern sensibility. But to do so in this age of disruption and misinformation and social bifurcation, competition, I don't think we get very far citing Rousseau, although I think we should. <laughs> Instead, we have a new step that we really have to embrace that makes us a little bit uncomfortable, and that is to overtly articulate our commitments and tell that story over and over again, rather than assuming that our value proposition is clear. Since becoming president, we've really been thinking about what this means and I'm doing that in the context of a very strong foundation that I was fortunate to inherit. So we've made this a priority, which is echoed by our Board of Regents and is built into our outreach and engagement priority as a land-grant institution. And we've tried to work on this engagement, of course, across our university community with our business partners, from the C-suite to our tribal community partners and everything in between. We're working really closely with the private colleges, and with Minnesota State's Leadership Council as we chart the next steps on a range of issues, including our strategic plan and convening a leadership summit in May around student mental health, just as an example. And in this spirit, we're developing a plan to coalesce and quantify the university's outreach and engagement efforts, which was an important charge coming out of the Board of Regents retreat last summer. In particular, we've developed an interactive impact web application, which not only highlights these efforts across every county in the state, but continues to grow by the hour as our teams work to populate the map with more data. If it looks chaotic, it's because we do a lot. And I'm especially pleased and optimistic about the frequent engagement that I've had with lawmakers on both sides of the aisle, including their leadership of each party, to seek their input on a range of initiatives from what we have in the system strategic plan to our priorities for this legislative session. We've told them, and many of you have heard us say, that each year our graduating class adds nearly $200 million in annual earnings to the state economy. Our University of Minnesota alumni currently living in Minnesota contribute more than a quarter trillion dollars in impact, 
and our university system generates nearly $9 billion in annual economic impact to the state of Minnesota. And I've even shared some of CFAN's sweet corn ice cream at the State House when making our case. You know, they do a lot of really interesting science in CFAN's, but they also make this amazing, delicious sweet corn ice cream. And sometimes you just need a treat, just to be reminded that things are actually really great. So this session, the legislature has the opportunity to strengthen our exchange, to think about this bargain and expand our university's impact on the state through some really important strategic investments. We're very engaged in St. Paul with a simple message that our world-class university needs world-class facilities that match our ambitions and help us fulfill our mission of service to the state. And robust state support is the best way to make that possible. Our top priority is to restore existing facilities by undertaking renovation and improvement projects across the university system in a way that enhances the student experience, improves safety and security, and accessibility for the tens of thousands of people who use our buildings each and every day. We have a really massive maintenance backlog on our campuses. The 10-year need at the University of Minnesota is $4.8 billion. And our needs going to increase the longer our aging facilities go without funding. You may be surprised, or maybe you wouldn't be surprised, to hear that half of our buildings are 50 years old or older. This includes our campuses here in the metro and in greater Minnesota, our research and outreach stations and our field stations. So the state's investment in us is not only critical to reversing these trends, but we think it's a win-win in exactly the way our, we are articulating that it's to our core in our mission of service, research, and teaching, but with a modern sensibility. And it's an investment in Minnesota students who become the workforce-ready graduates and the dynamic leaders our state and our society deserve. It's an investment in discovery, research, and cures by world-class faculty and researchers that transform our state and therefore transform society. And of course, it's an investment in facilities and infrastructure, which allows us to use operating dollars to enhance the student experience and make our institutions more affordable for all Minnesotans. I want to highlight a couple of these capital requests because it really gets at the notion of what education has been, but also can be looking forward. So for example, we asked for $29.2 million to renovate and modernize the Child Development Building here on the Twin Cities campus, which is home to our Institute of Child Development, a program through our College of Education and Human Development. It's also the home to our number one nationally ranked developmental psychology program. And we hold this top ranking despite the current condition of the facilities and the lack of classroom space. We've been pretty gritty about how the faculty and students and leadership of that college and that institute have done that. But it's not sustainable, and it will get harder and harder to maintain our edge under these conditions. Last month, though, I was very pleased to join Governor Walls and Lieutenant Governor Flanagan at Anoka Ramsey Community College, where they announced support for our capital needs. And this followed their tour of the Institute of Child Development and kickoff of their bonding statewide tour back in October. We really believe they understand that an investment in our facilities is an investment in the tremendous impact we have on people. And it will only serve to grow the university's outsized economic contribution to the state. To this end, I also want to share with you another important way we're engaging to serve our original core mission, our land grant values, and leverage our strengths while enhancing our value proposition as we look to the future. And this important new distinction is built out through our system-wide strategic plan. So we make commitments under system-wide strategic planning that are intended to bring together five very different campus 
experiences, campuses with a different sense of place, but all exist together in service to the state of Minnesota. And not surprisingly, we all commit to our students across the system. We all commit to discovery and innovation across the system. We all want to welcome everyone who wants to partake in what it is we offer, and we want to be responsible stewards of our resources, all of us. But frankly, all universities want to do those four things. If you put your hand over the logo, some of you have heard me say, these would be the commitments or goals or values of any university strategic plan. And one might argue that that means it's not actually strategic. So what is the distinction for the University of Minnesota? We've tried to articulate in what we're calling minter sections. And I always look for the eye roll when I say that word. I, I will admit, as an, a new arriver to the state of Minnesota, the places where the letters MN are inserted, I find very charming and I wanted just a little piece of it. So there you go, minter sections. So what is minter sections is our commitment to improving people and places here in the state of Minnesota at the intersection of our system strengths and opportunities inspired by where we are. We want to take the questions posed by the state of Minnesota and answer them robustly at the intersection of where we bring the most ability to move the needle. For example, health is a strength of ours and an important opportunity that we do better than anyone in the state of Minnesota. So to this end, we're committing to delivering next generation health innovation and well-being through world-class teaching, learning, discovery, collaboration, and service. In this work, we're reframing the paradigm around how we train clinicians, how we explore the delivery model, how we cure, and how we innovate around medical technology. This commitment also includes a recent innovation that we're very excited about, which is the purchase of the Shriners Hospital facility on East River Parkway to develop a first-of-its-kind Institute for Child and Adolescent Brain Health. This new institute will focus on brain development at two critical developmental stages, the first 1,000 days of life and adolescence, resulting in better diagnoses and treatment of neurological disorders in children and adolescents. And also through our mentor sections focus, we're committed to Minnesota's environment, innovating to restore and protect the wide range of natural resources that support our culture and economy, including lakes, rivers, forests, and fields. And we're committed to food and growers through enhanced growth in agricultural productivity while improving nutritional outcomes and food accessibility. We're committed to clean water, a unique aspect of the environment and sustainability that our state poses questions around, including our thriving lakes and rivers, abundant water resources for agriculture, safe drinking water for citizens, and a healthy aquatic life. Like our recent breakthrough in the mapping of the zebra mussel genome, which is combating one of the biggest invasive species challenges in the state of Minnesota. And in this collective work, we're leveraging faculty, staff, and student expertise and agility across wide-ranging research disciplines. Another important evolving strategy as part of our mentor sections work is a commitment then to enhance our entrepreneurial ecosystem so that we're innovated, innovative in all of the above. We want to become deeper and more strategic partners with our business community, particularly our Minnesota-based Fortune 500 companies around research and workforce development. There's a lot to be proud of around our work to date, including not only the record number of startup companies this past year, but a record number of patents issued. And as we develop a greater and more robust entrepreneurial ecosystem, we recognize that much of our prior corporate engagement has been more ad hoc, scattered, 
on individual relationships that are very strong and important, but a shift in this paradigm to a corporate engagement pyramid that centralizes this work within our vice president of research office, and more specifically in a new innovation center, can be a focal point for corporate partnerships, tech commercialization, and new ventures. And we think through this initiative, we will drive growth, including agreements, unique companies, support for shared research questions, master agreements, and more broadly, innovation and economic impact in service to the state. By engaging in businesses, we ensure we're not only helping business leaders meet the unmet need for employees, but we're answering questions that the state of Minnesota poses uniquely and robustly that we can be the most important partner in helping to resolve. But we continue to unlock the door to future talent attraction for the state, including people who want to move here with their children or members of their families because of our statewide strengths. We're really good at medical care. We're really focused on sustainability. We're really focused on food and environmental systems. And after all, when people look for the best places to live in Minnesota or America, it should come as no surprise that towns and cities with a college or university are nearly always among the top choices. And let's not forget, at the end of the day, the front porch to our university, and it's this search for many is our world-class athletic programs and all the fun and engagement that our success on the field or on the ice brings to all of us. So in sum, when we leverage our strengths and tell our story, when we remember who we are and articulate our value, and when we engage internally and externally with stakeholders and our partners, we reinvest in our contribution, we fulfill our bargain in the social contract that has yielded this amazing society, and we all win. And because we're doing what we need to do to protect and strengthen our contribution and serve our communities, I believe we're well positioned to ensure that our bargain propels our state, our students, and our citizens towards an even more promising future. So I wanna thank you for the amazing opportunity to be just a small part of everything that this university does and for everything that you all do for the state of Minnesota and the University of Minnesota. So now I'm happy to take any questions if you have any. Thank you very much. So there is a microphone floating. If anybody has any questions, I'd be delighted yes. to answer them. Hello, yes, we have four microphones, so if you have a question, we ask that you please raise your hand. If able, please stand, and our first question's in the back of the room. Sorry about that, I can't stand, but I raised my hand. That's one out of two, that's pretty good. Um, I, I, there's a plethora of stuff, uh, sent, which, which this lunch is for, so you learn some, that you mentioned that I'm really interested in, accreditation, Shriners Hospital, and things like that. But my question I wanted to ask was, when you knew you were becoming president of this great University of Minnesota, what fundamentals did you bring from your higher ed experience in South Carolina or any place else to help really run this uh, great university? And also, I support the front porch pretty well. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so, Can I say one more thing? I forgot. Of course. I, I testify in higher ed for the University of Minnesota and did uh, seven or eight years while President Kaler was here. And I'm no hero. Anybody can do what I can do. But I do my services pro bono to the University of Minnesota, and I want to offer again. Thank you. So, uh, you know, it's interesting because the fundamentals of higher education, we always say the three legs of the stool are research, teaching, and service. 
Um, and if it were that simple, we wouldn't be having this conversation. We'd be talking about something else entirely. But those really are the fundamentals that we are engaged in discovery. We educate students broadly, and we think about our commitment to the state, particularly in public education. And when you have the good fortune of being at a university that is of this quality, you want to be committed to the state, but at world-class levels, and how you find that very delicate balance between the two. So the, I think the fundamentals in that are to always look back to the three legs of those stool when we become distracted sometimes by individual challenges or individual um, moments that can feel like they pull us off that track. When I was um, dean of business in Missouri, I had a fellow on my board who was the CFO of a Fortune 500 company. He was from Pilot Grove, Missouri, which has about 2,500 people, and he had eight brothers and sisters, and he was the only one who left the farm from the entire family. Very anchored, real person, um, one of my favorite people. And uh, first day, first board meeting afterwards, and we're going through sort of the state of the college as a dean does with their board. And I know there are a lot of overseers in here who know exactly what I'm talking about. He pulled me aside after and he said, you know, all these new ideas are good. Sure, go ahead. Think innovatively, but don't forget who we are. And I hear that in my head all the time from his point of view all the way back to my own don't forget who you are, which was to study philosophy at a tiny liberal arts college and spend hours in the stacks reading Credo. Who else has a question? I just want to get, <clears throat> excuse me, your thoughts on uh, the global world we live in and what role do you see this whole emphasis uh, of STEM, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, in the broad priorities of the university? Where would you place that? Uh, because we're facing all kinds of competition globally with China, India, and everything else. Just your thoughts there. Well, there's no question that uh, there's all kinds of data that shows the impact of the STEM fields on economic growth. So having students prepared either for careers in STEM upon graduation or for additional graduate study in order to be scholars in the STEM fields, I think is axiomatic. I believe that the success and the distinction in doing work in the STEM fields and in being a scholar in STEM comes from being grounded in a broad education the widest part of the funnel to the more narrow part of the funnel as you enter into the workforce, either as an undergrad or later. And so we really think about this, our faculty are very committed to this through how they look at general education or what at some places is called the core and what that means in terms of aligning being educated with being technically prepared for fields like STEM so that you don't just have the skills, you of course need to have the skills, but you also have to have the competencies and the perspective and that that's where the distinction lies. Hello, thank you very much for being here today. Thank you, Laura. Um, if you could uh, share some more thoughts about uh, student mental health and what your plans are in that area, that'd be helpful, thank you. Sure, so uh, I'm going to give those of you who haven't heard this before a very daunting statistic. So 18 to 22 year olds, not just our 18 to 22 year olds and not just university students who are 18 to 22, just 18 to 22 year olds are on average 43% diagnosed with some mental health condition. 
and not that they self-identify as having a mental health challenge, but they have received a they've sought care and received a diagnosis. So that doesn't include the students who simply in response to a survey or in their own self-assessment say, I'm struggling. We assume that there's a whole percentage of students who fall into that category. And so our soft estimate is that half of our students are coping with a mental health challenge of sufficient severity to affect their ability to be successful as a student. We don't know why, uh, and by we, I don't just mean the University of Minnesota. We as higher education, we as society are studying why. But it is what it is, and we can't wait for the answer as to why before we reach in and lean in and serve the students. And so we've been working across the system um, in collaboration with other universities, including in active collaboration with Minnesota State, to think about how we can lean in now, knowing we don't have full information yet, and serve the students as best we can to maximize the likelihood of their success, while our researchers and researchers at other institutions are looking at root cause and looking at the originating cause. So we've done what we call an environmental scan of all the services that we offer across the system. And it might not surprise you to learn that when you pull all of that together, we do a lot. We're very committed. It's happened in a variety of ways. SRI has set up very specific services in Carlson, as have some of the other colleges with larger student populations. We have centralized services. We also have services that aren't counseling, but are intended to assist students outside of the counseling environment, like uh, what we would broadly call mindfulness training, sort of a catch phrase for how you learn to cope uh, yourself and to lead your own behavior and uh, coping mechanism. And we are engaging very actively with what I think is one of the most amazing things I've seen amongst faculty who really have a lot of independence in their classroom, but through faculty governance have committed to looking at how they can maintain rigor in their classroom without unduly aggravating stress. I'll give you a specific example. The lawyers in the room will appreciate this as I am one. When I was a student, all legal exams were one big exam at the end of the semester. The lawyers in the room are nodding at me and their faces all went pale in the memory of what that was like. It's incredibly stressful and not necessarily the best way to assess mastery of information. So how can faculty learn from each other or learn from specialists in pedagogy and assessment, how you maintain the standards. Of course, we wouldn't want to, you have to know what you have to know, but how we go about doing that and the faculty have taken up that, uh, through the uh, faculty senate have taken up a charge. So these are the parallels. We have the scholars researching the root cause, faculty exploring their own programming, making sure our counseling services are robust, both in um, quantity and in location, and coalescing our outside the counseling environment services so that students can find what they need if they don't necessarily need counseling, and measure, assess, rinse, and repeat, and try to make sure that we're offering everything we can so that our students progress. Thank you. Thank you. To what extent will online education and working remotely help to alleviate the building renovation needs that the university is experiencing now and in the future? That's a really good question. So um, in the short term, uh, and by short term I mean probably over the next five years, although um, 
I must admit that's an educated guess more than a scientific assessment, not so much because most of what we've asked for is the um, basic maintenance of the buildings we already have and research space. So the research needs physical space and buildings that are already falling behind need to be maintained um, regardless of whether we distribute through technology or whether we teach in a traditional classroom. But leaning into the future and thinking about a distributed learning strategy, which um, we started talking, well, the conversation started long before me, but we talked about it at the board retreat over the summer and we'll be talking about continuously as we get things started, could change and already has changed what our classroom needs are and our classroom capacity. It's, we use what we now call flipped classrooms. When we talk about online education, it used to be the exception. Now every faculty member puts materials up online changes the way we teach, changes how much we print, changes what books look like, changes how faculty, what they say in front of the room versus what students do in their own time in preparation for class. And over time, we see that changing our needs. But it isn't, um, that's, that's a long game as opposed to a quick switch flip. There's one over here. I'd love to hear your opinion on diversity and how you kind of better serve diversity across the university as our student population continues to change, especially as you think about looking at diversity from a macro perspective and thinking about the programs that are being masked by that, where you typically have less diversity in race or in gender or religion, thinking about how you, how you focus on those areas. Yeah, I think one of the things that is um, of an interesting learning curve when you move into out of the classroom in your faculty role and into an administrative role in university life is the appreciation for the fact that um, having representative student body, representative faculty and staff requires purposeful, intentional, planful leadership. It doesn't happen organically. And there's this assumption, you know, you show up in the front of your classroom and your class looks the way it looks and is the way it is, or you look to your left and to your right with your colleagues and you don't always know how it happened. But our re human resources experts will tell you, and many are in the room, that in, this, in the time we're in now, and maybe this won't be for forever, but certainly right now, in order to be diverse requires a strategy and a plan. And so, and not the same plan. It's not the same plan to recruit and retain students. It's not the same plan to recruit and retain faculty and not the same plan for staff. Or by the way, in our community partnerships outside the traditional walls of campus into our neighborhoods and partnerships locally and around the state or globally for that matter. And so we have leadership that has responsibility for the strategy and helping us set it and then the team across faculty, staff, and students, the cabinet, deans, council, the provost, student government, and faculty government, and staff leadership to then execute on that plan. And then same thing, you have to measure, is it working? Why isn't it working? Rinse and repeat, and do it again and again as we incrementally try to get better. I've been seeing um, a lot of information about how students of color in Minnesota, the outcomes for them are quite different than white students. And so I'm very curious how you think the University of Minnesota can be a leader in bridging that gap and having a different future for our state. Yeah, so uh, I'm, I'm sure everybody is uh, familiar with the um, 
the data that you, the, the example that you provide, the story that you tell that our attainment gap or achievement gap in Minnesota is one of the worst in the country, and I must admit, um, like many of you, that's a surprise here. Uh, it's an unexpected um, attribute of our state, but it is absolutely true. And there are a lot of really brilliant people, both on the ground through nonprofit support and as scholars or just as committed citizens who've been working for a really long time to get at root cause or to get at solutions um, with incremental improvement, but not the kind of turnaround that one would hope for or expect, frankly, given the kind of community that we are and the way in which we're so supportive of our community and the, and the, and the community-based and philanthropic mindset of, of the leadership of this community. So what we do in um, that kind of social question is get back to our who we are. So we have faculty who are doing the research. We have faculty, staff, and administrators who are serving in leadership roles in the um, in the field work that is either happening in the schools or in nonprofits or in other types of advocacy. And then we also measure, participate, and try to look for where the gaps are and work at them incrementally to improve. I think our main contribution also is in understanding um, something that we have some unique insight into, which is teacher preparation and what it means to actually be in the classroom and serve the teachers who we know are a cornerstone to the success of the students in their classroom and everything that goes around that. So we try to be participants as scholars, as in service, and also in the instruction and preparing people for the workforce that serves this component of society. We have time for one more question. Please raise your hand. Um, thank you. Of course. Uh, as the uh, government policy become tighter, towards the international students, I want to know what the University of Minnesota has done to protect the students' rights and whether in the, their school process or especially to help them accomplish their career goals after their graduation. Thank you. You're welcome. So uh, we have uh, deep and literally centuries-old relationships with partners around the world. Our faculty represent the world. We have students from all over the world. We take students who are from here to far corners of the world. I think it is a presumption of this university's culture and really many universities' culture, but I think we do this particularly well to appreciate the value of cross-cultural competence and success um, in understanding the world uh, in order to be prepared for life after graduation. And those are very nice things to say, but they also mean very individual and specific people who arrive here with hopes and dreams and make an investment in their education, and we are committed to meeting students where they are. And so if we bring you here and you are from elsewhere, we want you to feel a sense of belonging while you're here. We want you to be academically successful while you're here, and we want you to have full opportunity after you graduate when you finish in the same way that a student from down the street would uh, be presumed to have those expectations and we would be presumed to fulfill them. So we have entire offices of people who are dedicated to the unique attributes of the international student experience. I was an international student myself in reverse for part of my education and consider it um, one of the most transformational experiences of my early adulthood, as many of us who've had that kind of experience do. Um, and so we're 
we are very glad to have our international students here. We think it makes an incredible contribution. It's part of our talent attraction for the state of Minnesota. It's part of the um, interesting irony between domestic service and global impact is bringing in multiple points of view and multiple people here and then committing to that success. Thank you all very much. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. That wraps up episode one of Inside the Boardroom, featuring University of Minnesota President Joan Gable from the Carlson School's First Tuesday series. You can find more information about this podcast, including a peek at our upcoming schedule, by visiting z.umn.edu slash boardroom. I'm Jamie Plusser from the Carlson School of Management. Thank you for listening.